Uh, I just finished, uh, actually yesterday, I was reading an article the last oh, week or so uh, that a, a journalist had written about what was going on in, in uh, Loudoun County in Virginia. I don't know if you've seen this on the news, but it's been this vicious fight over a school board up in Virginia and the things they're teaching in the school and all this stuff. And so I read through this really long form article that this guy had written. He had gone there and spent a bunch of time there and just kind of chronicling what had happened and the way it had devolved into just a lot of really bad stuff happening there. But I got to the end and he had like a, a last article just kind of summarizing everything. And he said this in it, as I read it yesterday, he said, anyone who thinks the conflict in Loudoun was exaggerated in the press never actually visited. If anything, the level of vitriol was undersold. There's a real fury on a level normally reserved for places like picket lines. And moreover, the situation is continuing to deteriorate. And I read that and thought how depressing and kind of sad it is. And even as I read the whole story and kind of wading through all the stuff, uh, and I think it was kind of the point of the article was just showing that that situation there is a microcosm of what's happening in our culture today. And we've gotten to this point where things are so divided and people are fighting and ugly and not hearing one another. And as I read about it and I thought about what he was saying and even his summary kind of article uh, that I read yesterday as he brought all that together is I just kept seeing at the heart of so much of what's happening in those kind of divisions, not just there, but all around our country and the things that we see is a heart condition that really comes back to a self-righteousness and, and it's rampant in our culture right now. That it's like, if I'm right and you're wrong, then anything that I say or how ugly I am is justified because I'm right. And it's this self-righteousness that's really ugly and we see it all around us in so many different ways. And what has happened is we've embraced this idea that if I'm right and you're wrong and you're ugly to me, then the, the right response is to be even uglier to you, to raise the stakes and go back harder because after all, I'm right. And you see that all around and we've, we've embraced a terrible lie in our culture. We've embraced this lie that... Uh, ugliness and being really ugly leads to change, right? Because what happens in, in this situation in this article I was reading at the school board or, or all around our country is, is we get angry and we get whatever because we think we're right and we want other people to see how right we are. But we've bought the lie that being really ugly will actually lead to that. And it made me think of a, a, an old quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the height of the civil rights in, in the 60s. But he said this, he said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And what happens is we've forgotten that. And we've gotten this thing of the self-righteousness that's everywhere that you look. And so we're attacking and we're going at each other in so many ways. And it's all built on a lie that that's somehow going to produce fruit, going to produce good. It's not. And the sad part is so many believers have embraced this. And what just, uh, it makes me sad, to be honest. I was talking to my brother about this yesterday. I was telling him what I was preaching on and how I was feeling about it. I said, it makes me sad because it goes to the very heart, uh, the very opposite of the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In every way. It's the opposite of everything that God tells us of what he's like and who we are in Jesus and what we're supposed to be like to the people around us. And as I was thinking about that, we were wrapping up the series and coming back and, and today we're going to wrap up our Advent series where we've been saying Jesus is the true and better. So we said he was the true and better promise, priest, 
prophet and king last week. Today we're going to talk about how Jesus is the true and better Savior. And I'd already kind of picked to do that from Titus chapter 3. And this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. But it dawned on me as I was thinking about that, kind of working through that, that not only is it a perfect uh, passage to show us that Jesus is our true and better Savior, and it shows us this so clearly, the, the glorious theological truth of that, but it also shows us the truth that puts to death self-righteousness. The truth that we desperately need to hear as believers in our world today, but what our world desperately needs to hear from us. What the world needs to see modeled from us in our world today. And so I'm excited about this passage. I'm excited about this sermon because there's so much good here. And I think it speaks directly to where we are today. And so the way I want us to look at this, Titus chapter 3, as we think about how Jesus is the true and better Savior. And I keep saying true and better uh, obviously we believe and we confess Jesus is the only savior. There, there is no other. It's not that he's better than the other alternatives. There is no other alternative, but the truth is in the sinfulness of our hearts, we often turn to other things. And so by thinking of it in the terms that he is better, it does work that he's better, but he's also the only savior. But as we think about true and better, I want us to first think, why do we need a savior? Then secondly, what does it tell us here about how we are saved? And that will in turn point us to why Jesus is the true and better Savior. And then lastly, very practically, what does it mean for us? How does it help us in our world today? And there's two really important things in this text that will help us. And so let's just start with why we need a Savior. But before we do that, since we're kind of perishing, parachuting in to Titus, we've been kind of jumping around passages, let me just kind of set the scene for you, right? Titus is a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a guy named Titus, who is a young pastor in Crete. And Crete is a rough place. He's a young pastor surrounded by some people that are rough around the edges, and it's difficult. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage him as he's loving those people, as he's appointing elders in Crete at different towns, as he's kind of overseeing and working as a pastor there. And so he writes this letter to, to encourage him. But if you look in chapter 1 of Titus, verse 12, you get an idea of what he's dealing with, right? So verse 12 says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And it gives you an idea of what he's dealing with, right? I mean, we even use that term today, Cretans. Right to, to you get a visual of what that's like. Well, that's where this came from. It's who these people were. And Paul says it's true. Like their own people recognize they're rough and they're hard and there's a lot of bad things there. And he says, so rebuke them sharply. Continue disciple them. Continue to point them to the truth. And so then he's going to tell some things to help with that. And that brings us to chapter three because he's continuing in that as he's telling them. So Pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And what we see there in the, the first chapter and what we know about Crete and what he's dealing with, I think it's safe to assume he's telling them, you be kind to everyone, avoid quarreling, be gentle, continue to do these things. Because they're probably not getting a lot of that towards themselves, right? They live in a place where people like to fight and where it's difficult and where it's hard and there's division. And he says, even in the face of all that, you continue to be kind. 
You continue to be gentle. You continue to show courtesy. And then he says, notice, towards all people. He doesn't say the people that are nice to you, be nice to them. He says, you be nice to all of them. You be gentle and kind to every person that you come into contact with. But then he tells you why. And this is the way Paul often writes. He's very logical in what he says. He says that. And then look at verse three. He says, for, right, because this is why you should be gentle to everyone. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and in envy, hated by others and hating one another. And so we start to ask the question, why do we need a savior? Paul's description in verse three is a description of every single one of us apart from the grace of Jesus in our life. That's all of us. He's not just talking about the Cretans or certain people or the people that are the bad element. He's talking about all of us. He says, you show perfect courtesy and you be kind and you be gracious because you're exactly like that apart from the grace of God in your life. And if we're really honest and we really start to kind of walk through this and think about it, the truth is we're still like that at different times, even as believers. And I want you to think about what it means, what he says there. It seems kind of harsh. You go, that's a description of me, really? Like, but I want you to think about what he's saying. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Just take those one by one. What does it mean to be foolish? If we look at biblically the descriptions that are giving, foolishness is denying God. Unbelief in who God is, right? Um, it, it tells us, for example, Romans chapter 1, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And you know the context of Romans 1 when he says that. He's talking about people that have, have denied God exists and they're now worshiping the creation over the creator and they're saying all this world is all there is and there is no God. And he says, as soon as you do that, you're claiming to be wise, but you're actually becoming a fool. And so the Bible tells us that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, of seeing who God is, trembling in awe of who God is, that that's where wisdom begins. And as soon as we deny God, as soon as we forget him, as soon as we seek to operate without him, we are moving into foolishness. And so that's the first part, foolishness. But then he says right after that, they were, we were once foolish. And then he says disobedient, disobedient, ultimately being disobeying what God's word says. I say this all the time, and it's so important for us to be reminded of it. That's why I say this so much. But sin is rebelling or ignoring against God and the world he created. The definition of sin is not what we decided is, it's what God, the creator of all things, ultimate reality, we exist because God says so, sin is disobeying what God has said. And so when we operate in foolishness, forgetting God, ignoring God, denying God, we then, it's a short step to disobedience. But then the next thing he says, foolishness, disobedience, then led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures. As soon as we deny God, as soon as we ignore the things he's told us, when we are ignorant to the things that he's told us, what steps in and fills that void is our own passions, our own flesh, our own way of thinking. And as soon as we start to operate in that way, we're led astray. We're going against the things that God has told us and the way he's created the world and the way he's made us to be. And as soon as that happens, we've been shot off in the wrong direction. And that's where all the problems come in. God gives us his word and he gives us his laws and he tells us what he's like for our good. 
because he is the creator of all things and he knows how it's made. And in our foolishness, we say, well, I don't need you. I got this. And as soon as that happens, it's exactly where it leads. And so he says, we become slaves to the various passions and pleasures of our flesh, our sinfulness. We operate like I'm the decider of what's good and right and I'll follow me and I don't need anyone else. And that's a disaster because you were never created to be that way. You're created to walk with God and to trust him in all things. And as soon as we forget that, it's a mess. You you could look at Ephesians chapter two. It's almost a perfect parallel, Titus three, in the way it lays out. Here he says you're slaves to various passions and pleasures. In Ephesians chapter two, he says you were dead in the trespasses in which you once walked. He says you're spiritually dead. Here he says you're a slave, but he's saying the same thing. That left to ourselves, that's what's going to happen. We're going to put ourselves at the center of our story and make it all about us. And so if we summarize it, we could put it this way. Apart from God's grace, we can do nothing. Nothing. There's nothing good that we can do. And I want you to just follow for just a second how complete and destructive that is. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We can do no good works. And the reason is our foundation is all wrong. We're operating in foolishness. As soon as we deny God, we've, we've established the foundation completely wrong. And nothing good is going to come from that. It's like when Jesus says, build your house on the rock and not on the sand. When we deny God, we've already started building on the sand. And it's a matter of time before it comes crumbling down. Even when you seek to do good things, and you, and you could object and say, well, wait a second. I know people that are not believers that are good people that do good things. And that's true. So do I. I know people like that. I have friends like that that do good things. But if you're seeking to do good things all while ignoring, rebelling against God's existence, it's not actually good. You're living a lie. We do good things and then we go, look at what I did. And you start to make it all about us, which is exactly where self-righteousness comes from. That's why it's everywhere in our culture. Look at how smart I am and look at what I figured out. And I can't believe how dumb those people are. And I start to take credit for something that I should never take credit for. And it's everywhere. It's rampant. And so Paul's reasoning is here is you be kind and you be gracious to everyone and you don't return evil for evil because you remember who you are in and of yourself. You can do nothing. But see, our sinfulness is so rampant and so in us that even as a believer, even as the spirit comes and brings us to life and makes us a new creation, we still struggle with it. And I think about it when you, when you read verse three there, that can easily be a descriptor of us as a believer when we begin to operate in unbelief. doesn't mean you're not a believer, but there's times at different parts in your life and different things we operate in unbelief. And then what happens is our unbelief, our sinfulness of our flesh starts to believe lies. And so we say things like, um, we start to put ourselves back in the center of our story. Instead of God being central in everything and it's all about him, we make it about us. And again, we start to slide back in. So we'll say, yes, I'm a Christian and I believe it's God and it's by his grace. And then I walk out of here and I go throughout my week and my days and suddenly I get to something And it's like, God's word says this. And I go, I don't know that that's going to work. Move over, God. I'm going to take the the reins back. 
And in this situation, being kind won't work. And so that's what we do. And we do that all the time. And we ignore the things that God clearly told us. And as soon as we do, we are now being led astray by the sla- and becoming slaves to the various passions and pleasures of our flesh. I know I should forgive this person, but they deserve my wrath right now. So I'm going to let them have it. That's my flesh speaking. I'm no longer walking by the spirit. I've decided to take the reins back. And we do that. And we do that a lot. And what happens is what he tells us at the end of, of uh, verse 3 there. He says, when we become slaves to various passions and pleasures, we're passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I want you to just think about that for a second. Malice and envy. Those are things that are rooted in comparisons. And comparisons happens when you put yourself back in the center rather than God. You make it all about you. Envy is looking up at other people. Man, I wish I was like that guy. Malice is seeking to tear people down, destroy them, go after them. And actually what we often do is both. We see somebody we envy and then we're like, I'm going to tear them down so I feel better about myself. And what happens is we're rooting our identity in comparisons and what we do rather than what God has done. And that's where self-righteousness and self-justification comes in. And it's a disaster. And it makes no sense. And we're forgetting the part that I just said at the beginning. Apart from God's grace, we can do nothing. And we start to believe we can do it. Well, at least I'm not like that guy. And instead of seeing God's holiness and his righteousness and his perfect his perfect uh, character, we start to compare. Well, I'm not that bad because I'm not like that. I want you to think about how ridiculous that is. I have a friend that asked me uh, a couple times throughout the last couple years, will call me and ask me to go play basketball with him. And he's a couple years older than I am. And he's like, hey, I got this game. We play early on Saturdays. Come play with us. And so the first time I go play with him, uh, he's a couple years older than me. We walk in. We're the two youngest guys in the gym. It's like the old man's game. Secret. They don't want anybody to know because they don't want the young guys to come in and ruin it. Old guys playing together. And the first time he invited me to come, I went. And I was like, oh, all right. Start running up and down the court. I'm like, I'm pretty fast. <laughs> Suddenly, everybody's like 10 years older than me. And so it's like, I'm going to the basket. I'm making layups. I feel pretty good. I'm like, right? I start to compare myself. And I'm like, I'm still pretty good at basketball. And it'd be like, that's, that's what we do, right? We have a sliding scale and we start to compare ourselves to other. But it'd be like me walking out of there and being like, I'm pretty good. I should be in the NBA. Anybody who watched that game would not think I should be in the NBA. They'd be like, that guy is a little less worse than all those other really bad players. But that's what we do. We place ourselves in the center and we start to compare. And I'm glad I'm not like that person. I'm glad I'm not like that. And I'm, I'm not that bad. And I'm a little smarter than that one. And all of a sudden, self-righteousness is bubbling up. Because we've placed ourselves right back in the center where we were never created to be. And suddenly, when we do that, we're back to going through the, the passions and pleasures of our flesh. And envying and tearing down and comparing and all these things that begin to happen. And when we do that, what happens in our sinfulness is we take our eyes off of God, we place it solely on us, and then we start to believe the lie that part of my salvation is my doing. Look at what I've done. I'm a pretty good person, and I'm not that bad, and all these things start to come in. But I want you to see what he says next. 
The very next thing in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We are so sinful. He just told us how sinful we are. Remember who you were. But then a verse later, he's also got to remind us that we're saved and it's not because of what you do. Even that is a testimony to our sinfulness, is it not? He just told you a verse earlier who you are. And now a verse later, he's got to tell you, oh, and by the way, you still can't save yourself because that's what we do. We start to believe the lie that it's all about me and I can do it. And even as a Christian, even as a Christian who says I am saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We say that every week here. And you go, yes, amen, that's true. And then you say, well, how did you become a Christian? And you go, well, I weighed those things and I decided and I thought it through and I saw this and I came to the conclusion and I put my faith in Jesus. We often talk that way. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. You make real choices with real consequences. You are in your life. You are living it. You're seeing those things. Yes, you're going to see your life from your perspective. But oftentimes we put it in language like that, like it's what I've done and who I am and what I've figured out. And we even talk that way in the way that we operate. But what it says here is it's not by your works. Right? Do you see that? He says it real clearly. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He took pity on you. Yet while you were sinners, Christ died for you. Even in our rebellion... Even when we're that description in verse 3, he came to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He's giving you not what you deserve, but better than you deserve, and it's completely dependent on his mercy. And so I want you to think about that. So how then are we saved? What does he tell us? It's not by your works. But then the very next thing he says but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I love this verse, two verses. One of my favorite words in all of the Bible is in the middle of that, in verse 5. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That word regeneration means making new. To set things in their pristine state. And he says the way in which you were saved. The way in which that unfolded in your life. Is God according to his own mercy. Not your works. Sends the Holy Spirit into your life. And he regenerates you. Makes you new. Palagenesia. It's only used twice in the Bible. Here and in Matthew 19. Only time that word's used. But it means making all things new. You know, the only other time it's used, and it was a word that was common in the first century. People would have known what that meant. Greek philosophers, the Stoic philosophers had this idea that the earth was cyclical, that the universe was cyclical, and that over time, everything would be made new again, that it would be burned up and it would be starting over. And Jesus takes that word and he says, in the regeneration, when the son of man sits on his throne, 
And he says, yes, all things are going to be made new, but it's not going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. It's coming through me. And Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 19. And Paul knew that. And he knew that connection that Jesus made, that yes, regeneration, all things being made new is coming, but it's coming through Jesus. And here he says, that's what the Holy Spirit does in your life. That you and I, apart from Jesus, are verse 3. Disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And the only way that we break out of that is the Spirit moves in our life and brings us from death to life. Opens our eyes. Does for us what we could never ever do for ourselves. And I love that Paul chooses that word to point that out. That God inspired him to see that. The regeneration, the making of all things new, bringing from death to life, that that's what it takes. And it's a movement and work of God in your life for you to be able to see him. You're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It's the only way it happens is by God's mercy. And so the God of the universe, because of his goodness and loving kindness towards us, according to his mercy... The power with which he's going to redeem all of creation is now at work in you, bringing you from spiritual slavery and spiritual death, unable to do anything in and of yourself to glorious life, to be able to see who God is. It's pretty amazing. Palagenesia, new life. It's because the spirit moves in you and opens your eyes to see. You go, well, how did you become a believer? By the mercy of God. Regenerating you by the power of the Holy Spirit. I said at the beginning, this is the end of our series, and Jesus is the true and better Savior. And so you say, well, it's according to the mercy of the Father who sends the Spirit. Well, what does Jesus have to do with this? How is he the better Savior? If it's the Father and his mercy sending the spirit and fullness that brings us from death to life, how is Jesus the one that saves us? How is he the Savior? Why is he the true and better Savior? And so follow his logic. He saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that we might be justified by his grace can become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I want you to think about how that works. See the connection that he's making. Jesus purchased your salvation by living the life that you haven't lived and dying the death that you deserve and taking your sin upon himself and paying for it. Doing what you could never do completely by grace Yet while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And he came to do for you what you could never, ever do for yourself. It's not your works. It's not God looked at you and went, oh, she's a pretty good lady. I'm going to send uh, Jesus for her. I'm going to bring the Holy Spirit in her life. Or he's a pretty good guy. He's kind of met me halfway. So I'll go the rest of the way. No, we're spiritually dead. We are following our passions and pleasures and we're ignoring God. And we're continuing in that way. But yet, because of his mercy, he sends Jesus to do what we could never do. And he does. He's tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. And he comes and he does it for us. And he brings our sin to nothing as he takes it upon himself and he pays for it. And he opens the way that God can be perfectly just and purposely merciful at the same time. He doesn't 
skate over our sin and just say, oh, it's not a big deal, I'll forgive it. He pays for it and he brings it to nothing and he purchases our salvation. And so I want you to think about how that works together. The Holy Spirit comes in your life and he comes in fullness because God has made the way for that to be possible in Jesus. And as the spirit comes in your life, and he opens your eyes and he brings you from death to life and he pours out richly on you this ability to now see that you can see your sin, but you also see who Jesus is and what he's done. And it's all because of what Christ has done for you. And they're inextricably linked. The father's mercy and the spirit's movement and Jesus's finished work and they go together. And if you don't have Jesus's finished work, then it doesn't work. Think about that for just a second. If the Holy Spirit comes in your life and it opens your eyes and you go from spiritual death to spiritual life and you go, oh, I am a sinner. And God is holy and he is righteous. And you begin to see that as the spirit convicts you of sin. But if Jesus hasn't come, then what? I am lost. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. There's no way I can stand before God. And he convicts you of sin. And then you see that you can never do it. The end. But because Jesus has come, the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and shows you and points you to Jesus and what he's done for you in his finished work. And you go, I am a desperate sinner in need. And the Spirit turns and points you to Jesus and goes, yes, but we have made a way for that perfectly. The Father in perfect concert with the Holy Spirit in perfect concert with the Son who comes to do for you what you can never do for yourself and it's all by grace. And every single part of it is God's movement towards you. It's all one way. I want you just to think about that for a second. In every single part. You see him and then you begin to see your sin and you're convicted. Why? Because the Holy Spirit moves. The washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit brings you to life. And you go, I see it. God is holy and perfect and I am not. And I have gone against him in every way. And then the Spirit moves and shows you Jesus and what he's done for you. And you see Jesus and you see the grace that he's given. Why do you see him? Because the Spirit moved in your life. And because Jesus did for you what you can't do for yourself. And then you confess faith and you say, yes, it's all Christ and not me and nothing I can do. Why do you do that? Because God showed you. He gave you eyes to see. And when you see Jesus, you choose Jesus. And the only reason is because he moved in your life. That's it. And when we forget that. And we become self-righteous. We are against the very heart of the gospel. And my heart breaks when I see that. When I do that. Look at me. I'm pretty good. No. God is gracious. And he's loving. And he's mercy. And he's done for us what we can't do for ourselves. The end. So you go, what part of it is God's grace and his mercy to you? And the answer is all of it. Every bit of it. Every step of the way. All God's doing. And so I want you just to think about that for a second. 
If you are saved completely and totally by grace, every step of the way. Practically, what does that mean? And I look around at the world and I look at the struggle that we see and the division and the things that are going on. And I say it destroys, if we understand this, it destroys self-righteousness. Because it is radically and totally and completely and gloriously humbling. I have nowhere to go, but it's by God's grace. I mean, that's what he says here. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Follow the logic. Paul is so logical in the way he writes this. The way he lays it out. So when you have opportunity, be kind to everyone. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. Do you know why? Because each person that you meet that is far from God, that is ugly and angry and shaking their fist at the things of God, that is you, but for the grace of God. That is me, but for the grace of God. And that should bring us to a place of radical humility. It is the self-righteous killer. The only way that I see this, the only way I can come to this is because of what God has done for me. It is by mercy. Through his grace, him and him alone. So self-righteousness is the antithesis of the gospel. The exact opposite. Because it's all Jesus and all what he has done for us. And our world desperately needs gospel-saturated people that are so overcome with God's grace in their life that we are then gracious to those around us. Darkness can't drive out darkness. The only thing that overcomes sin is the grace of God and Jesus. And we have to hold fast to that. But the second thing I'd say to you, practically what this means, you go, okay, I'm with you. I believe that. And then you walk out and somebody's ugly to you and it's really, really hard, right? Someone's really ugly and they say things that you think are completely wrong. And they may be completely wrong. There is truth. There are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And people do hold the things that are wrong that go directly against God's word. And you walk out and you go, man, this is really hard. And I would say in and of ourselves, it's not only hard, it's impossible. If I'm walking in my flesh, guess what happens? I suddenly become slaves to my passions and I'm led astray and I'm angry and I'm envying and I'm malice and all those things that he talks about. So how do we do that? That's why I said one of my favorite words in all of the Bible, palagenesia. You are a new creation in Jesus and the Holy Spirit now dwells in you. You can't do it, but the Spirit can. We can't do it, but God can. And so each day we get up and die to ourselves and say, God, I want to show people what you're like. Would you work in and through me? Because I can't do this in my flesh. That's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. The opposite of foolishness. I can't do this, but only God can. But the good news is he says he can do it and he will do it. And he's working in and through you, bringing you from one degree of glory to another. And it's by his power. And so I want you really to think about that. 
the power that is going to regenerate the entirety of all the cosmos is now at work in you through the Holy Spirit. And so you can't do it, but God can. There is an abundance of power available. And it takes us dying to ourselves and trusting him in that. And he will do it because he is faithful. And so we have hope even when things look dim because of what he's done. Because he's our true and better savior. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that it reminds us, that it brings us to a place of humility, of our need. But you don't just leave us in our need, but that you come to us. We thank you for the season that we celebrate, that it's all what you've done for us. And Jesus, help us to see that afresh today. I pray moment by moment in our lives, in each interaction that we have, that we would continue to come back to seeing that it's all you. And it's what you've done, that it would humble us again and again. But at the same time, we would be overwhelmed by the glory of your goodness to us, your mercy to us, and that we would be people that show that to others, that we would be gracious beyond measure, continuing to point to what you've done, and it would be all for your glory and your name's sake. We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.